0: Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, how would you feel if you just invested in a brand new electric vehicle, and then a year later, your utility comes back and says that you can't charge at home unless you pay a fixed charge of, say, $50 a month just to plug in? Well, many utilities are trying to retroactively make changes to established rules for solar and storage. They're adding large fixed fees to solar customers. I mean, these are people that might have had systems for 10 years or 20 years. They're increasing the rates just for solar customers. And some of them are making it difficult, like PGE territory or impossible, to connect battery systems in spite of, you know, all of our need for backup power. So fundamentally, the reason is because businesses don't like competition. It hurts their profits. It's not that solar and storage are bad. It's just that for utilities, solar and storage hurts their profits. Their customers, homes and businesses can generate electricity for much less than their utility charges. So utilities spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year suppressing competition from rooftop solar and battery storage. And to add insult and injury... Where does the money come from? Well, they're spending the money you paid them to suppress competition from solar and storage. Unfortunately, solar and storage industry doesn't have the kind of bankroll that the utilities have. But the good news is polling shows that over 95% of the people support solar. I don't know exactly what the number is for electric utilities, but it's probably down there with your cable provider. All right, so to address this, an organization called the Solar Rights Alliance was founded to empower the millions of solar and storage enthusiasts, customers, these are people or businesses that have solar on the roof, plus plus tens, 20 million more people who work or live in a building that's powered by solar. And the goal is really to offset all the fake news that solar and storage is bad for the grid and bad for customers and it creates cancer and it kills birds or whatever is being made up. The Solar Rights Alliance is a non-profit organization. They're based in California and their mantra is simple. Everyone should have the right to generate his or her own power directly from the sun and that no monopoly utility or special interest should try to block or own the sun. Now it's my pleasure to have back on our show Dave Rosenfeld, the executive director of the Solar Rights Alliance. He spent his career building movements and institutions that expand freedom, liberty and justice, including National Public Radio and PR, the Public Interest Research Group, and the Public Interest Network. And also, Dave spent some time in New Jersey. He's an alumnus of Rutgers, my home state's university. So welcome to the show, Dave. Hello, Barry. Thanks for having me on. All right, good, good. Well, I I give a brief update about the Solar Rights Alliance. Tell us a little bit more about the organization.
1: Yeah, it's been a really exciting year and a half since I was last on the show. Thanks for having me back. You know, as you said, our mission is that we believe everyone has the right to make energy from the sun on your property without unreasonable interference by the utility. We keep track of what the politicians and the regulators and the utilities are up to. And then we alert you when there is a threat to your investment or there's an opportunity to expand solar. And we work to try to make it as easy as possible for you to make your voice heard in an effective way. And then also, if you want to do more than just kind of things that are easy, then we want to give you opportunities to really step it up, and help do the work to organize California's million solar users and more to really have the voice that we ought to have. We've been now around for about two and a half years, about 13,000 people now on our list, and we're growing every single day. And that's good because there are a lot of threats to solar and we need to get organized.
0: So who should join? Do you have to have solar to join? No. I mean, if you
1: have solar, you should totally sign up. And it's really easy to sign up. It's free. You just go to our website, solarrights.org, Rights. Solarright dot org and sign up it's free we respect your privacy really really heavily we have a policy of never selling or sharing your contact information with anybody else unlike a lot of other nonprofits, so that's a big deal hopefully and another reason why you should trust us get involved but if you don't have solar you should join too if you're thinking of getting solar someday or you know maybe you don't have solar you're not thinking of getting solar but you understand that solar and battery storage and especially rooftop solar is one of the key things that we absolutely need in order to be able to prevent power outages, give people more control over spiking electricity bills, fight climate change and reduce pollution. You should join too, because we need a group that is solely focused on making sure that everyone has the right to use energy from the sun. And there are powerful, powerful interests, Barry, as you said in the beginning, powerful interests that are spending enormous amounts of money and flexing their power to try to stop you From being able to make energy from the sun on your property. And the only way we're gonna fight that is with a collective voice.
0: It's a terrific organization. I'm so glad that you're leading it. We've made great progress. And, you know, candidly, the way the solar and storage industry are, the opposition is never going to stop. I feel like we're like the car industry fighting against the stable and the buggy whip industry. And, you know, I'm sure they put up a fight, but superior technology and, and most importantly, superior economics will prevail. So speaking of what's going on now, California is suffering from wildfire created blackouts, from equipment failures as transformers blow up because they weren't designed for air conditioning and electric vehicles, rolling blackouts. just got hit with those a couple weeks ago, and then there's another set announced this week. That's where the utilities say, oh, gee, we don't have enough power, so we're going to turn power off randomly. Also, public safety power shutoffs, which are weather-induced events where the wind's too high and they're shutting power off. So right now, I mean, just over the past three or four days, we've been hit with the Rolling blackouts and PSPS and equipment failures. And one of our employees' power was out this weekend because there's a transformer blow So, um, how did solar and storage perform over the past few weeks when California got hit with all these outages?
1: Yeah, it, it's a great question, and I love the way you put it. So, let me, I want to talk directly to the solar users who are listening to this show. So, if you're listening to the show right now and you have solar, you help save California's butt when these power outages go down. You absolutely did. On August 14th alone, which was one of the first big days where there were these rolling power outages. Nobody else showed this in the chart, but had solar not been on the grid, then the outages would have been so much worse. At three o'clock in the afternoon, you basically kept five thousand megawatts of energy use off the grid because you had solar. It's huge. And had you not been there, the outages would have been worse. But it goes even more than that. If you're one of the 30,000 solar users in the state that has a battery with your solar, you really save the state's butt. And in fact, last month, state officials were begging people with batteries to share that extra energy with the grid. And on August 15th alone, people with batteries delivered as much as 300 megawatts of electricity to the grid. And had the state actually had their act together and had thought of solar and battery storage as a resource that can help to prevent power outages, we might have been able to prevent those outages from happening altogether because there is actually enough people right now who have solar and a battery to replace the electricity that would have come from the natural gas plant that mysteriously shut down. So you're already helping to save the state's butt, and the more people that get solar and especially get that battery we will be able to do this in states and even make power outages a thing of the past.
0: Dave, you used the term the state was begging for people to turn their consumption down and deploy their batteries. How can we formalize this? I mean, there's a difference between begging, like, please give us your capacity or coming up with a formal program where you know, the governor could just send out a command or there could be some software that would automatically discharge these 30,000 batteries that would make up for this loss. How can this be done automatically instead of through a process of begging and without any economic benefit to the homeowner or business, but purely the benefit to the utility?
1: Yeah, There are several steps that the state needs to take, but I want to focus on the two most important ones, because the journey of a 1,000 miles begins with one step. And this journey is worth it, because we can literally outage-proof our communities. We can make power outages, at least at the scale that we've seen a thing of the past. But there's two things that have to start the journey. The first is that the top officials in this state, Governor Newsom, the PUC, the leaders of the legislature, have got to publicly and vigorously acknowledge that rooftop solar and battery storage are absolutely essential in order to be able to prevent power outages, and that we need more rooftop solar and battery storage than ever before, and we have to stop doubling down on the antiquated monopoly horse and buggy system as the way that we're going to get ourselves out of this problem, that we actually need to diversify and exponentially grow solar and battery storage, that that's the path are getting us out of this mess. So that's the first thing is they have to stop towing the industry line, the utility industry line, and start recognizing that by partnering with millions more people in California to be a part of the solution, we can get ourselves out of the problem. That's number one. And the second thing, and this is not the only thing, but it's to start is they could very simply apply net metering, to battery storage, just as much as they do to solar panels. So let me just explain that a little bit more and then we can unpack it right now. As any solar user knows, the extra solar energy that you don't use on site will flow back to the grid, go to your neighbor, and you will get a credit for that extra energy. But if you have that extra energy stored in a battery and the same thing happens, you won't get a credit. Well, without that kind of compensation, that's not a very good deal for the person that has spent you know, a lot of money on a battery and having that system. So the state needs to modernize its whole process for how it's going to incentivize people to share their extra energy with the grid and apply a tariff of some sort, just like net metering with solar panels, to battery storage. Once we do those two things, we're off to the races, and then there's a number of other things we could do to just supercharge that and turn, as Bernadette Del Chiaro from the California Solar and Storage Association says, we can truly turn the state solar users who have batteries to flex alerts on speed. But we have to do those first two things.
0: Yeah, you know, it's embedded in the contract that our customers have to sign with PG&E that they're not allowed to discharge their batteries to the grid unless they put in a you know $10,000 special meter. The electrons don't really know if they came from the sun or or actually came from the grid. It's just an electron. But they prohibit us from automatically discharging it. And that's what the state needs. You know, a few thousand people in a neighborhood, I mean, each battery can discharge at a rate of 5,000 watts. I mean... That's a ton of energy right then and there. You can really solve this problem and wipe it out on a local basis. And then you kind of deploy that on the whole state basis. And the other great thing, Dave, about these batteries that our customers are installing is they can be deployed pretty quickly. And I know we don't get them in in a month. Sometimes it takes three months. But it could take three years for a utility to put in a similar amount of capacity that just a bunch of local solar companies can do in a city in a matter of six months.
1: Let me give you an example of this, Gary, because you're just so right. I was listening to a news conference that the governor had a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the power shutoffs. And a reporter said, hey, how is solar and battery storage? How could this help things? And the governor started in a way that you would think would be great. He was saying, yeah, we need more solar and battery storage, and we're building it. We're building it. We're building big solar facilities out in this place and that place, and we're building big battery systems. We're putting thousands of megawatts of batteries on the grid, we're doing it. And if you weren't really paying attention to the whole thing, you would go, great, everything's great. Except you and I know, and I think our listeners know, how wrong that is. I mean, yes, we should be building more solar farms and wind farms. And yes, we should be pairing those with giant battery systems. But that does not help us with power outages, because if the lines go down somewhere, then it doesn't matter if that stuff is really far away. We need that. We also need solar and batteries in our community. And the fact that the governor... When he had the golden opportunity to talk about that, he didn't. He just still either doesn't get it, or he's just so influenced by the utilities that politics is keeping him from getting it, and the fish rocks from the head. And so long as the governor can only understand solving this problem with a daddy-knows-best monopoly utility lens, we're not really seeing much progress. Now, I'm always the optimist, and I think this problem, and the events of the last few weeks, and the fact that state officials were practically begging solar users with batteries to help out in an altruistic way, maybe we've reached that turning point. But I think that press conference told me how far we need to go to get the top officials to just really understand that the solution is staring them right in the face.
0: Well, you know, part of the response from the governor is the utility kind of party line that this is a cost shift problem, which is going to increase the costs for other people and not for the solar people. But the reality is, you know, we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars trying to build that capacity. And it's already happening, especially if we kind of made that process simpler. So how do we kind of get away from this fake news cost shift argument and focus really on what a good solution is?
1: Yeah. I think it's pretty easy, and I think we just have to be very consistent. First off, let's remind people the real cost shift is utilities overbuilding the grid with gold-plated and unnecessary transmission and distribution lines that they don't even maintain, and then turning a profit on that, even when we don't use it. So that's really where the cost shift is. That's why electricity rates keep going up in California, and that service gets worse and the cost gets greater. But then, there is no cost shift. It's just complete bogus. Once you take into account the cost of long-distance transmission and distribution, Once you take into account the risks associated with that, both in terms of fires and the fragility of the whole thing, once you take into account the fact that you lose electrons when they travel over long distance, but you lose much less, if not any of them, when you keep them local, once you just factor those things alone, you're starting to realize that there is no cost shift. In fact, we're saving the state billions of dollars a year, as the California Independent Systems Operator found in 2018 alone. Then just add in a few more things. When more people build solar and storage systems at home or in their schools or at the fire station or their small business or their factory, then that's less solar panels that we have to spend ratepayer dollars building out in the desert and then building the transmission lines to connect them. So then we save everybody a bunch more money because the infrastructure doesn't have to be as heavy and so forth and so on. And so once you add all those things up, then it's kind of more like, you're welcome, California. We're saving you money and we could be saving you even more money. And building a better, more resilient system, and by the way, reducing pollution, if we would actually invest in people and consider this one of the best infrastructure projects that the state could possibly create.
0: Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time with CALSA and Calcia lobbying in Sacramento, and it's been brutal over the last three or four years, because we were really trying to get the message through that battery storage was really going to help. And we were being fought tooth and claw by the utilities, utility employees who would kind of march into the hearing room all wearing T-shirts from the utility, talking about how it's going to be a cost shift and it's not going to be productive. And, you know, it doesn't take, convincing the entire legislature. It just has to convince a few of the influential people who, you know, when you look at who's donating to their campaigns, they're making a mint on the utilities to basically say, we're going to go with utilities storage, utility solar, and we're going to do everything in our power to inhibit the installation of behind the meter solar and storage. So frustrating, but that's because this is a money game and the utilities just have so much more money to play with.
1: And I think that's why I'm actually optimistic that we can overcome so just using your example of how legislators they get kind of buried by the utility industry's lobbying power we can overcome that because we have more people than that and so just to give you an example this is before coronavirus when the legislature was in session and this is going back now to 2019 but we had the solar Bill of Rights which among other things would have prohibited utilities hitting solar users with discriminatory fees just like smud or San Diego Gas and Electric tried to do. And the hearing that we were going to have in front of the Senate Energy Committee, it didn't look so good going in, based on what the senators were telling us. They were parroting the utility industry line. But between solar companies and then also solar customers, there was probably a good like 50 to 70 people on our side in that hearing room. And we outnumbered the utility industry by like 10 to 1. I mean, it was just obvious where the public was on that. And that committee unanimously passed our bill. It surprised the heck out of us. But they realized they couldn't look out into a sea where utility industry was so outnumbered by the people and then not pass the bill. Now, the bill got killed. But here's the kicker. The way it got killed was in the next committee. And it's not important what the committee was or anything like that. It was because the utilities basically cut a deal with the leaders of that committee to quietly kill the bill without a public hearing. And they did it in like this really sneaky backdoor process way. And so they realize that when they actually have it out in public now, we are organized enough that we will beat them. So they have to now resort to like dirty tricks in order to win. Now, obviously you could say, well, that's really depressing. But I go, no. Once that's the only trick that they have, then it means that we have our tool to win. Because there's only so many times that they can get away with that before then it comes back to bite them in the butt. And we're not going away. So this is where the organizing of the solar users, which is what we do, is helping you, The you know, I assume you're listening, make sure that your voice is being heard. And then the good work that CALSA is doing and other folks who are pro-renewable energy, this is how we're going to overcome the utilities. And I really do believe that we can do it. And I have other examples of how we're seeing some success.
0: Yeah. And the numbers keep getting better and better for solar. I mean, there's more solar workers in California than there are utility workers. All right, so net metering, you talked about this briefly, Dave. It allows customers to get paid for the power they send to the grid, less these crazy fees that are there to allow the utility to make up for some of their lost profits. It's infuriating, but we'll talk about that more later. So, but net metering is under attack at the state level and at the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, which we fondly call SMUD. And SMUD used to be a great solar supporter, but they've changed. And moreover, the utilities have increased these lost profit fees. So I'd love to be in a business where I can get a guaranteed profit, even if my customers make my product for less money than I'm doing. So what can we do about this? Yeah,
1: yeah. So let's take a just step back on net metering. So, you know, net metering is basically a way where solar users can give their extra solar energy to their neighbors and get credited for it. And it's the foundation of solar in California. And the utilities hate it and they want to kill it. And as you say, we know that at the state level, Public Utilities Commission has launched a review of net metering. The utilities are pushing them very hard to cut it or kill it altogether. SMUD, which serves the Sacramento, larger Sacramento area, has also launched a review of their net metering policy. And their executives have put out this completely bogus study that's just a hit piece on solar filled with just all kinds of mischaracterizations and inaccuracies that make it seem like solar actually shifts costs onto uh, non-solar users when in fact the opposite is true. And so obviously these are very real threats to solar that are happening this year. So that's the threat, and I don't want to understate just how serious it is. The key thing in both of the instances, both with SMUD and then also with the PUC, is that the underlying facts are completely in our favor. So that's the first thing. So if you take a look at the PUC's own numbers, the avoided cost calculator is the the wonky term for it. And even if you take a look at SMUD's own bogus study and you look at all the footnotes and information that they buried, when you look at all the ways that solar saves money in terms of reducing the load on the electricity grid, the way that solar reduces the need to have to invest in more large-scale solar and other kinds of renewable energy, when you look at the ways in which solar very quickly reduces global warming pollution by reducing methane leaks and other kinds of things, but when you roll all of that in, then there is no quote-unquote cost shift. It, in fact, solar more than pays its way and should be something that you'd want to continue. And if anything, the thing that you want to be doing with net metering is two things. One, we would want to, as we were talking about before, use net metering to incentivize more people to put in that battery and make that payback period a little bit more quick because we can use that energy and you can use it any time of the day. And with the right value proposition to the customer, then people will be willing to share that excess when that energy is needed the most. The other thing that we ought to do with net metering is give an extra bonus if you're low income or if you're a landlord with a lot of rental units and you want to put in solar and be able to pass those savings on to your tenants. That would be a way to expand solar exponentially and get it in the hands of some of our poorest residents, the people that need a break on their energy bills, and allow them to contribute to reducing global warming, closing down fossil fuel power plants, making the state's electricity grid more stable. So the facts are on our side, and the vision that we have to tell about protecting that metering and in fact enhancing it is a way more compelling vision and one that solves problems that Californians care about. We have the best solution for how to avoid power outages. We have the best solution for how to fight global warming and allow those benefits to accrue directly to the people rather than some giant corporation that lives out of state. So we just have to tell our story. And we don't just have to tell it to the state commissioners or to SMUD. We want to tell it to the people, because it's the people that ultimately we're going to need to influence the governor and the PUC board, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot of work to do, but we have a good story to tell that I think is very compelling and that when people when they hear it, they go, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. That's way better than the old antiquated horse and buggy monopoly utility, which ain't doing very much for us right now and it sure isn't working for us.
0: Well, you know David, some of the other numbers that our customers that electric users are clobbered with every single month is they just look at their electric bill. And you can look at that electric bill and you see that the price keeps going up and up and up. And, you know, I've been watching, everybody looks at their own electric bill, it's kind of important, but I'm taking a look at our bill and I know that the utilities are buying solar from solar farms for two or three cents a kilowatt hour you know, that's how much it costs to generate power in the desert. Now, by the way, if you're putting a system on your roof, your costs to generate that are going to be maybe six to eight cents a kilowatt hour because you don't have the economies of scale, but it's still really, really cheap. But then if you look at what the utilities are breaking out that charge for on your bill, they're charging 10 cents a kilowatt hour for the electricity that they're generating. We know it only costs two or three when it's solar. And to make matters worse, They're not charging you for their generating costs. They charge you another 20 or 30 cents a kilowatt hour. The average rate in our area here in California is 30 cents a kilowatt hour. So they're generating for two cents and they're charging you 30 cents. And then kind of to add insult to injury, and this is really clobbering some of the new community choice aggregation utilities in the state the utilities in California the investor owned utilities have managed to create something called a power charge indifference adjustment and this is what i kind of had referred to i just couldn't remember the freaking acronym but this power charge indifference adjustment is basically there to make up for the lost profits that the utility have disappeared because now more and more people are buying solar or they're getting it from a different source so once again boom it's just right there on the bill you know, twenty years ago the average electric bill in California might have been, you know, ten to fifteen cents a kilowatt hour. Now it's over thirty cents a kilowatt hour and there's no end in sight and the situation isn't gonna change if the utilities keep building more power plants, building, you know, their own storage and not maintaining things. So we're suffering from unreliable power and expensive power. It's the worst of both worlds.
1: Right. It's kinda of like let's say that my only grocery store forever was Whole Foods. You know, Whole Foods is more expensive than most of the other grocery stores. And let's say I could only go to Whole Foods. And then somebody builds a Trader Joe's in my neighborhood. So I go, you know what? I want to switch to Trader Joe's. It's cheaper. I like the selection, whatever. But then Whole Foods then charges me a PCIA, that that you were talking about, to switch from Whole Foods to Trader Joe's. And they won't even let me leave the store unless I pay them that fee. Like on what planet would that ever be good? And then the utilities say, oh, well, we need you to do that because if everybody leaves, then we don't have as much business or we won't be able to supply electricity, and then we'll be screwed. But that doesn't work in the grocery business. There's always grocery stores that are willing to sell you groceries. So it's only a utility a business that's been able to have a government-sanctioned monopoly for more than 100 years could possibly make this argument and get away with it with a straight face. And, of course, you know, there's just so much coziness between the utilities and the regulators that the regulators have allowed the utilities to do this kind of thing. And there's no good reason for it. We should be encouraging people to use less electricity. We should be encouraging people to make their own electricity. We should be encouraging people to put in energy efficient appliances, to use less electricity. So to somehow say we're losing money because people are buying less electricity from us. And when that action is something that's helping the planet and helping reduce the burden on the grid, it's just unconscionable that we would allow them to get away with that. Yep. And You know, this is a very pro-environment state. And if people really understood the degree to which regulators and politicians are letting utilities do that, I think they would just be
0: absolutely outraged, even more so than they are already. Yeah. the business model changed. I mean, a hundred years ago, when they started building power plants, people couldn't generate their own power in their backyard or on the roof. It didn't exist. But that really started changing 30, 40 years ago, and is really, really becoming popular now. So the business model changed, but the regulator's attitude towards it didn't change. And that's where the barrier is. We really have to find a way to kind of say, hey, for the good of the environment, for the good of our customers, from a reliability standpoint, from a safety standpoint, from a global warming standpoint, we got to do something different. And that means that we have to change some of these bedrock utility rules that made sense 100 years ago, but make absolutely no sense right now. That's right.
1: uh, And the good news is we're demonstrating that as we speak. Installers like you and the industry and the customers that are buying the product. I mean, 100,000 people a year in California alone are installing solar, more and more putting in a battery. So people are walking with their dollars. And so to the extent that we're having difficulties persuading just by sitting in the room, which I think is going to increasingly be more effective, Consumers are showing the leaders what's happening, and they're the ones who are leading the way, and that's why I'm ultimately optimistic.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, now let's change a little bit from economics to paperwork. I mean, it's been a pet peeve of mine for 20 years in the solar business to find out that there's more paperwork involved in doing solar than just about anything else, and almost none of it is really relevant. Yeah, I think it's good to get a building permit, but it shouldn't take a month. It's good to get a safety inspection, but you know we shouldn't need to jump through enormous hoops just to install, say, a five kilowatt solar system. And the analogy I always use is, you know, you're not required to get permission from the utility to buy an electric vehicle or to put in an EV charger or to put in a new air conditioner. They love it when you do that because you're going to buy more power from them. But if you're going to put in something that's going to generate power or if you're going to put in a battery, buckle up. The paperwork's going to be anywhere from a month to six months. So how can we kind of start addressing these issues, Dave?
1: Yeah. So I think there's two levels to the issues, right? So one is, and as you said, the system should get inspected, but that process can get better. And, you know, the solar app initiative is one great way where, you know, just kind of standardizing, because the industry itself is already pretty standard on putting in a solar system. And so just getting the cities and municipalities to standardize the review and just get it all wrapped in one package so they can be as much as possible one stop shop and not varying paperwork from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. That's obviously one level. But then what you're describing is then at the utility level, even after you've done that, and the utility throws you with a bunch of paperwork that often then puts enormous delays on the system. In fact, I just spoke with a member of ours who lives in your neck of the woods in Silicon Valley, and it's been seven weeks. His battery system is totally signed off on by the city, but he's now seven weeks since then waiting for PG&E to turn on the switch and still no answer, and you can't get an answer, and, you know, the installer's frustrated, and everyone's mad. It'll happen. Like, whatever. So this is just pure pressure on the PUC and on the legislature. I think it's going to change the day. There's only so many times that a farmer out in Central Valley is waiting a year to have their battery system turned on by PG&E before something is going to have to give. And this is where we just have to stay very, very persistent. These stories are crazy. The PUC keeps telling the legislature, don't worry, we're trying to take care of it, but obviously they're not. So we just have to keep coming back and telling story after story after story of customers that are waiting ridiculous amounts of time and installers and customers having to pay ridiculous amounts of money to be able to connect a simple system to the grid. And we know what the policy solutions are to this, both at the regulatory and state level. So I just think this is where we have to stay very, very persistent but we have to tell the stories. And I think where we can get better is every time we experience a piece of paperwork that's ridiculous and costly, I think we should send that paperwork to the state of senator and state assembly member and just have them start to accumulate the paperwork that we're having to deal with. And I think that'll help them get the message
0: too. Yeah. We did something similar when we kind of got the rebates streamlined about 15 years ago. But just to give you a couple first-hand examples that we've had, here's the irony. When we're installing batteries for customers, PG&E says you can't discharge the battery into the grid. So basically, everything we're installing, the battery is not attached to the grid in any way. It happens to be attached to the inverter, which is attached to the grid. But there's no transfer from that battery energy into the grid. But the utility makes us go through a three to six-month process just to interconnect that battery, even though that batteries by contract in the agreement with the utility can't be discharged for the grid so that's one it's infuriating and and we have a good way around it for now but it's really really annoying the second is the self-generation incentive program that's the big rebate program i think it's it's close to a seven or eight hundred million dollars of incentives for batteries and it's great it's something that the legislators in the state put in place Excellent program helping customers of all sizes, low income, medium income, high income, everywhere. It's helping them put in batteries. But it's administered by pg and And so I've never seen a degree of incompetence so intense by any organization than what I'm seeing at pg when it comes to administering this. We have a customer. It took over a year for them to get all the paperwork figured out because things kept getting lost at PG&E. And then the customer sold their house. And so there's a new owner. And the PG&E basically said, well, this new owner is going to have to start all over again as far as this paperwork goes and the rebates gone. So it's just so frustrating. And Dave, you're right. It's something that the PUC and the legislature can change. They're the ones that are regulating the utility and not just letting the, the proverbial fox manage what's going on in the hen house.
1: But I think that's right. But I think it takes pressure. And, and I think this is where Governor Newsom needs more pressure. So- like you're the story you just told of this one customer, I mean, my blood is boiling just hearing it. And it's kind of like the next time the governor is at a news conference and a reporter asks him about solar and storage, and he's like, look how great we are. We're building these gigantic facilities way out in the desert that have solar and battery storage. And somebody ought to say, if you guys are so great, then why is it that this one customer is waiting weeks and weeks and weeks with mountains of paperwork just to be able to get a stupid rebate or a small little battery storage system that they shouldn't be a problem to begin with. And we should just get more and more people, and we're doing this too, and I know that we're doing this, we need to do more of it, just hounding the governor in public settings to have to answer for that. Because ultimately, all he has to do is make one or two phone calls to the PUC, and all of a sudden, you'll be surprised how quickly things change. I'll give you another example of this. LADWP, which of course is notoriously terrible when it comes to red tape and solar, recently they tried to charge a new fee of $3,000 and up for solar users that are putting in a battery storage system, um, just to interconnect. Unbelievable. And we and others founded the alarm, and we decided, forget LADWP. We're just going to go to Mayor Garcetti. He claims that he's really that he wants to shut down power plants and move to clean energy. He should know about this. So 2,500 people on one day emailed the mayor, and about 300 people called his help desk on that day. And about a week later, LADWP dropped that charge for battery storage systems. Now, we're still dealing with a bunch of other problems with LADWP with respect to interconnection, but they dropped the most egregious thing, which was charging $3,000 to connect the battery system to the grid. And that came from very intense public pressure on the mayor, the executive of the city. So I think we have to basically start doing that same thing with the governor and the top leaders of the legislature, because it's just obvious the PUC on their own isn't going to force the utilities to do what they need to do. They need to get some downward pressure from the top.
0: Yeah, and the the solution is so clear, and and we've already implemented the solution in the past in California where we went from the CEC rebate program, which was administered by PG&E, to the California Solar Initiative, which basically streamlined the whole thing, and threw the utilities out of the business of deciding how quickly rebates should be given to residential and commercial customers. So that really made a difference. So kind That's of right. just kind of wrapping up, how can we as an industry succeed? Well, I think I really admire what the industry is doing. You know, you've
1: got a great association, the California solar and storage association, you know, very actively, pretty much in the mix, in the legislature at the regulatory level and at the local level. So obviously If you're an installer, you should just be sure you're a member (laughs) of the industry. I'll say with respect to my neck of the woods, which is customers, the best thing, your customers are some of the best advocates for solar out there, and they live everywhere in the state. And the Solar Rights Alliance, we're here to help solar users have a voice in these issues. And we can obviously sit around and complain, but we're not complainers, right? We're doers. If you're a business listening to this, you're obviously a doer because you've started a business. If you're a solar user, you took matters into your own hands and installed solar to have a little bit more control over your life and your destiny. And so if you're a business with solar, you should absolutely encourage your customers to sign up with the Solar Rights Alliance. Again, it's really, really easy. You just go to our website, solarrights.org. There's a huge button to sign up. It's free, so you just got to give a little bit of contact information. We will never sell or share your contact information with everyone. We will let you know. We will alert you when there is a threat to your investment. We will give you really easy ways to make your voice heard. Even if you're new to politics or you don't really like politics, we'll make it easy for you so that your voice is effective and the time that you spend on it, whether it's a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, will make a difference. So there's lots of things to do. But with respect to helping to empower California's 1 million solar users, to stand up and defend our right and expand it, that's the best thing that I can offer. And I hope that everyone here goes over, signs up, encourages your customers and your friends and your family members to sign up, and together we can make a huge
0: difference. All right. And what's that website again, Dave? It's
1: solarrights.org. So solar is the first word. Rights like the Bill of Rights, all one word, solarrights.org.
0: All right. Terrific. And I'm going to make sure that we kind of make this clear to every one of our customers to sign up with the Solar Rights Alliance. It's the people. It's really grassroots efforts to really change this. Okay. That's all the time we have on this week's energy show. Thanks David for joining me. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.